This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest Liverpool.com podcast from the Blood Red channel. I'm Matt Addison, making my debut as host on this particular podcast with Liverpool.com's Ollie Connolly and Joel Rabinovitz alongside me. Hopefully, chaps, you're both doing okay. Plenty to, to get into today, though, so we will dive straight in. And Joel, I'll, I'll come to you first. We'll begin with the Liverpool game that we all presumably watched on Tuesday night against Atalanta. We'll come to specific individual performances very shortly. No prizes for, for guessing who we're going to pick out to begin with on that one. But first and foremost, Joel, that was a, a really impressive team performance from Liverpool. Yeah, it was. I, I think it was the best Liverpool have played in 2020, to be honest. Um, going all the way back to last season, I think in terms of a 90 minutes um they were, they were near enough flawless back to front and it's just it felt really refreshing after sort of the run of wins they've done well to put together in recent weeks since the derby um but they have felt like hard work all those games Ajax Sheffield United West Ham Michelin's um they've just felt like a real slog Liverpool have done well to, to come out of them with the results given the circumstances of injuries and the disappointment of the games before that um they've shown real resilience and there's been moments of individual quality that sort of pulled them through, but in terms of what you'd actually want to see in the in the performance level, it's been quite lacking. It's been quite disjointed, a little bit lethargic, and just not what you're used to seeing with this Liverpool team. Um, and I'd say I wasn't expecting that. I thought it would be another one of those kind of quite gritty, close encounters on Tuesday night, especially away from home. Um, almost of the mindset going into it, but I'd, I'd be fine with a point. I think most people would have been fine with a point, given how the group was shaping up. Um, so to go there against what is one of the best attacking sides in Europe, I think I saw a stat that last season in Serie A, they scored, I think it was the record amount of goals in 60 years or something. So they are a really good team. Liverpool just made them look ordinary and yeah, they exceeded all expectations. Yeah, 98 goals, I think it was for Atalanta yeah. last year. So not a, a typical Italian side at all. And Ollie, I suppose we talked there about how it was a, a complete performance, really good sort of all over the pitch. We're going to touch more on Manchester City later in the podcast, but I suppose that was really the ideal performance to go into what will be a huge game for Liverpool on Sunday. Yeah, I thought it was... What was most intriguing to me was coming out of it, you think, well, the defence played well, you mentioned, one of the best attacking sides in Europe, and we kind of went in with... Atalanta runs all these funky rotations and they send seven men into the box and guys are going to be here, there and everywhere and how will Reese Williams cope? And then in reality, it was the movement of Liverpool's front three that created so many problems. They did similar rotational stuff. Salah here, Jota there, Mane there. Then everyone switched for three minutes and everyone switched again. But I thought it was really important. I thought the midfield were outstanding and kind of, I think they got a little lost in the shuffle given the defensive performance against that side and then how great the, the front three were. They controlled everything. It looked like there was so much space because they moved the ball so quickly in the middle of the pitch. You know, Atalanta's plan was to pack everything in there. They left the fullbacks completely free, which is kind of bizarre when you look at recent game plans against Liverpool. Um, I just thought that that midfield three controlled the game so well, moved the ball at such pace, so, so technically brilliant that it made things look really open once they moved further up the pitch. And I, I doubt Curtis plays at the weekend, but I thought that midfield three was really impressive. And that bodes brilliantly for, for Sunday. It's three clean sheets now, Joel, in the Champions League for Liverpool. I think they've only kept one so far in the Premier League. I mean, why do you think that they're able to do that in Europe, but they're not necessarily able to do that in the league? I was having a think about this when I saw you raised it on the agenda. Um, it is strange. that, To be honest, my, my answer is I don't think they're doing an awful lot different between the two. Um, clean sheets are a funny metric in football where they often don't 
really reflect the performance that much. It's just sort of how games pan out. You look at the Ajax game and you've got Fabinho clearing a shot off the line when it's just a couple of millimetres away from going in and being one all. Um, even Micheland were through one-on-one quite early on and they broke in behind and it was a good save by Alisson. Um, and again, Atalanta could have scored and not to say Liverpool didn't defend well. I think mostly they did, but you have that Zapata one, which I still can't quite work out how it didn't go in. It seems sort of defy the laws of physics. I went in off the, the inside of a post and across goal and the one when they broke through, I think it was a passer again, a really powerful low shot across goal and Alisson does brilliantly, a uh, really strong arm. So there were chances in those games and then it feels like at the moment in the league, I think Josh Williams wrote something on the site this week about this, but it's like almost every single shot or chance that teams have that's just going in, or especially the first one. Um, West Ham didn't create an awful lot at all the other day and it's just a kind of a slightly poor header from Gomez, falls to the edge of the box and for now sticks it in the bottom corner. Um, the Sheffield United game, that could have been a clean sheet. It was just a, a kind of a very dubious penalty, um, which stopped Liverpool getting that. So, yeah, it is an odd one. You would think the clean sheets will eventually come if they keep performing like this, especially once they sort of get a few few big names back into the fold. But, yeah, I can't it's structurally and tactically, I can't see a huge amount of difference between the two. I think it's just circumstance more than anything. I'll stick with you, Joel, for the next question as well, because I know you wanted to pick out Reese Williams as a, a player who really impressed for Liverpool. I suppose that the most impressive thing for me was that nobody's really been talking about him in the same way that we've spoken about other players because he just slotted in and, and looked like a Liverpool defender. It's a fascinating story. It's almost become a little bit boring hearing the cliche about how he played non-league football last season up until March time because they keep repeating it every time he plays now. Um, but it is true and it's it's amazing to think that back you only have to go back to August in pre-season. He wasn't even involved as part of the first team. The kind of the centre backs beyond the senior ones at that point were sort of Kumetio, Nat Phillips, Seth Vandenberg, even. Um Williams wasn't in the conversation and it was sort of a surprise to see his name just pop up against Lincoln City and he did he did okay that day. Gets the game against Arsenal in the League Cup. But at that point you're still thinking you're just not quite sure what to make of him or if he'll get any further chances. Um, and it's been so impressive. Klopp didn't need to put him on against Ajax late on. He didn't need to put him on against Michelin when Fabinho came off. He could have dropped Henderson for one out and back there. Uh, we've both played there before. Um, but it's a real show of trust to put him in a game of this magnitude. And I wrote in a piece this week, I think if you were to watch that Atalanta game purely as someone who'd, who'd not seen football before and didn't know anything about the Liverpool squad, there's absolutely no way you'd be able to tell that's a, a 19-year-old who's making his, his first Champions League start and only, I think it was his fifth performance for Liverpool. Um, yeah, especially with the hair tied up like that as well. It's just like a little young Van Dyke clone at the moment. So, yeah, it's difficult to see what his sort of ceiling is and how he gets on, but it's, it's nice that you have these sort of surprise names that just sort of come out of nowhere and look that comfortable. Um, and I'm sure we'll come on to it, but it's, it's a credit to the team and the guys around him as well that he's been able to sort of slot in that seamlessly. Yeah, very much so, Ollie. I mean, there's another 19-year-old in, in Curtis Jones in midfield. I thought Jordan Henderson and, and Wijnaldum almost helped him through the game in the way that they played as well. But it is very much a, a squad at Liverpool and, and they do very much help these young players settle in. And I suppose it, it's a testament really as, as much to the rest of the team as it is to, to these young players that they just settled and, and looked so at home in that team. Yeah, I think what's interesting, it's one of those when you talk about developing players and particularly when we're writing from the outside or you're watching as a fan, we were talking, as you mentioned, Joel, during the preseason, Cometio, Nat Phillips, you mentioned coming back, had played 
a higher level of football, but they see these guys day in, day out. It's impossible to gauge development of players from one-off League Cup games or small sample sizes in the kind of five minutes chucked on at the end of the game. They see them day in, day out, and they're seeing them at a team who famously is relentless in training, that the tempo and speed will be unlike anything you would experience at most other clubs in Europe, just the way they can move the ball at, at that pace. Um, and then obviously the the off the field stuff and just how are they developing mentally? Do they understand the structure of the system? That's stuff that we just cannot know from the outside. And so you have to put trust in the staff, particularly with this group of excellence they have that just trains with the first team rather than going out on loan. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, Joel made a good point there about uh, the, the players around them raising the level. It's really interesting. We wrote last week about Allison becoming more vocal and it was notable um, against West Ham, I believe it was, where he just out of nowhere started to bark out orders, which is not a very Allison thing. He's quite he's quite starey and he just kind of crouches and looks on and he's become more vocal as, as things have gone on. And same with Joe Gomez taking more of that leadership role. I think Trent has done a much, much better job as kind of a back post defender of pointing and signifying things. Liverpool have always been defensively outside of Van Dijk. They've just kind of let him control the narrative, if you want to say it like that. And everyone else just kind of looks and points and there's not an awful lot of talking going on. They just kind of know where they need to be. There has been, particularly against Atalanta, a lot more talking, a lot more communication, a lot more moving people to specific spots. And I do think not having a crowd helps them with that. It probably helps with the nerves a little bit. It probably makes it feel a bit more like training. Um, and then also just makes it far easier to communicate, even from the sideline, if it's Linders or Klopp giving instruction, just easier to get it to carry to the far side of the pitch. I think it's been a big week for, for Joe Gomez as well, Joel. You mentioned there about integrating centre-backs. He's obviously worked with Phillips and, and with Reese Williams in training and that sort of thing. But it's easy to forget as well that we talk about Joe Gomez now as an experienced option for Liverpool, but he is only 23. Yeah, you've got two of Joe Gomez's biggest biggest fans on the podcast today. Um, I know Ollie and I have spoken about him a lot before. Um, I've always thought he's great, really, even when he sort of had that rough patch at the start of this season and the back end of last season. You're, you're right to mention he, he's only 23. I think he's, he's actually younger than Nat Phillips, which just <laughs> makes you sort of question everything. It's very strange, but that's how much football he's played at a high level for Liverpool. Um, and I think, obviously, uh, the situation with Van Dijk is one that nobody ever wanted to happen. Um, but if you're looking at the sort of the positive consequences of it or the ways Liverpool have had to adapt, Joe Gomez stepping up as a leader is definitely one of them. Throughout his whole Liverpool career, really, he's he's been kind of the second guy to to a senior centre-back partner, mostly with Van Dijk. And previously, uh, when he's coming to the team at left-back and stuff, he's been one of the younger guys in the team. And now you look at that back four, he is he is the reference point for all of them, um, him and Trent together. Um, it's, it's also interesting that he's switched to the left-hand side, which you've never seen him play that left centre-back role before. I know he's, he's played left-back a couple of times earlier in his Liverpool career, but that change doesn't seem to have kind of bothered him at all. And it's not even just his defending and his organisational skills, which have been great in his recent games, but that assist didn't really get spoken about much because the finish was so good from Jota, but... That's the kind of pass you see Van Dijk play. You saw them quite a few times last season. Uh, you look at goals like Norwich away when Mane comes on and scores. Um, I think it was a Henderson pass that time, actually. But there's another Mane goal against Wolves at Anfield, I think, which is Van Dijk playing the ball over the top like that. And that vision and execution from Gomez, he's been trying it a lot. You can tell in recent games to, to add that um, because Liverpool do need that sort of distribution from the back. So, yeah, he, he's got so much to his locker and... I really do hope that by the end of the season, he's he's taken a massive stride forward as a result of having this responsibility. 
Yeah, it was a big win and an important win for Liverpool. Very much, you know, all over the field, those three points were, were picked up, Ollie. But I suppose it's even more important when you think that if Liverpool now beat Atalanta at Anfield in their next Champions League match, they'll be through to the knockout phase with two matches to spare. Yeah, and I think it it just gives Klopp options, right? They have different paths to qualifying now. They could punt on two games and then wait on Mitchland at the end. They could try and wrap up against Atalanta. Whichever way he kind of wants to figure out the jigsaw of fitness, match time, it's it's completely open to him. They're, they're going to win another game. They're going to find a way to qualify now. Getting that in the bag means that he can just basically cobble it together in whichever way he just kind of sees fit based on the matches after the Champions League games. Absolutely. And Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane up there with Diogo Jota, Joel. We are going to come into to more depth on Jota in just a second, but I think it's worth mentioning just how good Salah and Mane were as well, because it was almost a, a throwback to a couple of seasons ago where we saw, particularly with the, the Salah dribble, you know, halfway down the pitch with the ball on the counter-attack, it, it just felt like a, a throwback really under Jurgen Klopp in the way that Liverpool went about that match. Yeah, that, that Salah goal was very reminiscent of his first season. You just don't see him get in those situations that much anymore because teams are so wary of it. I know there was the goal against United at Anfield last season, but by and large, Liverpool breaking from a corner and having Salah through like that is pretty unusual. Um, and I was saying to Oli this morning on, on our call, the second he gets that ball there and he starts breaking away, both a goalkeeper and a defender know for certain what he's going to try and do. He's eventually going to slow down once he gets near the box. He's going to shift it onto his left foot and try and curl it into the far corner. That's that's what Salah always does. And yet there's there's absolutely nothing either of them could do about it. Um, it's quite different to some of the goals he's already scored this season. I know he's got a lot of penalties, but they've all been very sort of instinctive, powerful finishes where he's just driven them into the back of the net. Um Whereas that one, he had he had the time to think about it, and he just the way he opens his body up and curls it is is amazing. I'm pretty sure that's his by far his best start to a season for Liverpool in terms of goals in the first however many games. That's nine in I think eleven starts so far. So he's near enough going at a goal a game, which is pretty much back to sort of his forty plus goals a season level um, that he was at in seventeen eighteen. And yeah, you're right, Mane as ever. Um, he loves that little dink finish on his left foot. It reminds me a little bit of the um, the Salah goal that Yeti had, funnily enough, in 17-18, in the one that put Liverpool through. Um, you just have no doubt there that he's going to score. And it was nice to see as well that it was Salah who played the pass because there was a couple of times as well where um, I think there's one where he went for goal where he tried to lob the keeper, Salah, from about 50 yards and Mane was in a better position. So it was nice that he, he sort of laid that one on a plate for him. Yeah, I think both Mane and Salah absolutely superb and probably not talked about as much as they might have been had it not been for the performance of Diogo Jota between them. I think he probably helped them a little bit in the way that he played and we will only talk about Roberto Firmino's performance or performances of late and, and what Jota's performance on Tuesday means for the Brazilian going forward. But first of all, let's just look exclusively at the Portuguese forward. He's come in from Wolves and this was pretty much the complete performance from him. It had absolutely everything. Yeah, I think it's it's almost impossible to separate him individually from the other two, from Mane and Sally. It was the three of them together very much. They, they basically said, one of you goes through the middle and then whoever's through the middle pull to one of the wings and the other one will charge through. And obviously we see this with Roberto Firmino all the time, but they're a bit more... They're a bit more static, I think, than people understand when Firmino's in there. It is very much drop deep or drop into the right pocket. And that's why the average position chart, you always see Salah press so high up on the right because it is more he slides to the right pocket, Salah goes flying through, and then the three ballers play through. With, with Jota, it was so much more of everyone gets their five-minute spell in the middle, and then when you get there, go wherever you want, and the other guy 
charges through the middle. And Athlans just had no response for that level of movement. The intellect involved, the interplay, I just thought it was unbelievable. It really reminded me, I used an NFL example in my post-match column of the, a team, the Giants had a NASCAR package where they bought four undersized guys as pass rushers, basically. And because they were so slim and slender, they were just faster than everyone else. And it reminded me of that. There was no natural number nine. They're all a little undersized. They're all insanely fast. And they just picked up different boxes of space everywhere. And there's no way when they're playing that well in terms of movement uh, and intellectually with that level of technique. I, just, I don't know how anyone can cope with that. And that to me is almost like the dream scenario moving forward. As, as great as Firmino is, you just get this extra level of speed and punch that he just doesn't quite have. Uh, the level. I mean, Joss is just an unbelievable athlete. That, that's what it is. Um, so he was obviously outstanding. The finish is, is next level. I thought his quote about, yeah, I'm in mean, the best team ever. That's why I'm playing my best football. Life's easier <laughs> when you're playing with Mo Salah and Mane and an Atalanta team that's giving you bags of room. Um, so it's going as well as imaginable. But that, that just the, I can't imagine the video analysis team the next day just looking at the movement and being like, oh my God, this is actually happening. <laughs> this is like art, what we're watching with these three. Absolutely. I mean, we knew he was good, Joel, when he came in. I think everyone trusted the the process that Liverpool go through. They'd done the analysis. They'd looked at the statistics, the sort of things that he'd been doing for Wolves. It, it looked on paper to be perfect for Liverpool, but I don't think anyone thought he'd be quite this good quite this soon. No, I was hugely excited when I saw his name just come out of nowhere, partly because it was straight off the back of Thiago, who hadn't even got over the excitement of that, and then Jota just sort of emerged without any previous links whatsoever. And you know that he's a good player. You've seen what he's done for Wolves and stuff. But the expectation coming in was that he would primarily be back up this season. He'd start all the domestic cup games, maybe some Champions League group games, a few Premier League games. He'd give the front three a rest or if they're injured, he'd slot straight in. And you're thinking maybe sort of 15, 20 starts or competitions and maybe another 15, 20 substitute appearances. And he might get somewhere between seven and ten goals in all competitions that'll be a pretty good first season and then he'd sort of over the next few years hopefully gradually take over from at least one of the front three and that would be you'd be looking at next season and, and beyond then as when you see the kind of full version of Jota um, and this is a big statement but I I think in terms of actual new Liverpool signings it's the best start to a career I've ever seen um, I did some some digging on the numbers for this He's, in, in terms of his first 500 minutes, which is what he's played so far, he's on seven goals. So it's an average of a goal every 71 minutes. Um, Salah got four in that time. Mane got three. Torres got three. Suarez got two. You have to go all the way back to when Robbie Fowler first broke through um, for a player. I think he also got seven in his first 500 minutes. Um, so the level he's playing at is absolutely frightening. Uh, the fact that he's 23 as well, this is only just for start. He probably still hasn't learnt the system fully yet. Um, and Ollie's rights to reference the variety of the finishes. Um, there was so many sort of players that it reminded me of. I love the first one. Was sort of it's very underrated. I think the, the subtle sort of dink, chip, flick thing, whatever it was, of the outside of his left foot and into the bottom corner like that it was very sort of Michael Owen esque. I thought. And then the second one, the way he plucks it out of the sky and his first touch sets him up for the shot. I mean, he's already shot before anybody else can react. That was like. That's like prime Cristiano Ronaldo levels. And then the third one, the way he sort of flicks it through the keeper's hands like that and just keeps his composure. It's still a bouncing ball on his supposedly weaker foot, which it doesn't seem like he's got one. Um, yeah, I can't remember the last time, probably since Salah and Mane came, to be honest, but even more so than Mane because he was a little bit more of a slow burner retrospectively. Um, yeah, it's so exciting to see where he goes uh from here. 
what what's interesting with Jota? I know Joel. I did a, a deep dive on Y Scout when he first arrived. I know you wrote East too. I don't know about you, Matt. That he would, didn't have this diversity of finishes at Wolves. I don't know how a team would advance scout this if they're surprised themselves. He was not. He was an excellent player. He would run to the back post. He had some nice stuff in around the box. We would shape his body, shift the ball, and for the, the far post like most top class players can do. There was not this variety of of quality finishes. No, yeah, there I mean, were a lot he, of tappings. It was quite an underwhelming YouTube <laughs> compilation when you did it. Like good, good anticipation and positioning. He knows where to be, but there wasn't like, yeah, there wasn't anything like you saw the other night at all. Yeah, I mean, until he scored the the header for Liverpool recently, he'd not scored one in the Premier League. He'd never scored a header before he'd arrived here. I mean, it, it is that variety of finishing, as you say. And it's interesting as well, Ollie, that, that Joel says there that it's left foot, it's right foot. There's a couple with his head. It's actually a very even split between left and right foot. Can we can we even say that he is, you know, right footed or or is he just both footed? Yeah, I think that that's what's so exciting about the three of them as a combination is that you can just have, hey, you take five minutes on this guy. Or, hey, I fancy my skill set against this right back, so I'm going to slide over here for 15 minutes and give me a chance. And I think that it gives you this positional versatility within a match. That what it's the it's a level you reach of like those great Barcelona teams, that United team that had uh, Ronaldo, Tevez, Rooney, where maybe you go into the match with one player and after 50 minutes you say, hey, let's switch this up a bit, or hey, I just fancy taking this guy, or, hey, I've got the better of this guy today, and you can switch within a match in a way that the opposition just there's nothing they can do about that because you can pre-plan as much as you, as you want. And then you saw uh, on Tuesday night it was when Marnie went through the middle, they were as good as the that was when they had their best spell, they were unplayable in that spell, and then. Salah had to go through the mill too. It's like there's just nothing you can do about that. So to me, it, it couldn't be more, it just couldn't be more encouraging. And there is, you know, very much fluidity, as, as Ali says, Joel, in terms of, you know, the positions that they take up. It, it was primarily Mane on the left, Salah on the right and, and Jota between them. Where would you pick, if you had to pick one of those positions for, for Jota to start in most regularly, would it be through the middle or, or do you prefer him out wide from what you've seen so far? Um, it's a really difficult one. I think it's, to be honest, it's what Ollie says. I think you'd probably start him at least ostensibly through the middle. Um, but I don't think you're going to see a 90 minutes where he stays there strictly and you've got Mane coming in off the left, Salah in off the right. I think they will, I think they are at their best as a three probably when they do rotate because it just, yeah, it keeps defenders guessing. And I know they all have kind of quite a lot of similar attributes, but they all offer slightly different threats. So when you're doing sort of 15, 20 minute spells of one of them in the middle and one of them out wide, and they all have a slight, yeah, slightly different things. Obviously, Mane is ridiculously two-footed as well. He can go either way. Salah's obviously probably the most most natural, prolific goal scorer out of all of them and has his own kind of types of finishes that he loves. And yeah, I don't think Jota is going to have a nailed on sort of regular position, but I think I think that's probably for the best, um, whether starting or within games, if you want to switch them around, depending on how the game's going or on the specific weaknesses and strengths of the opponent. Um, it's very unusual that you get someone like that who looks as comfortable. I know it's a small sample size, but there's just nowhere in that front line, really. Other than the right-hand side, where you feel like his threat is, is slightly, slightly blunted because he's got to come inside a little bit onto his left foot, which is still good. Um, but you see... Yeah, those central runs and the diagonal runs in from the left-hand side. I think that's probably where you're going to see him get most of his joy. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
I think we we have to sort of touch on Roberto Firmino as well because you know the the knock on effect of of Diogo Jota's hat trick and the fact that he has been so so good is that we do have to ask the question of does Roberto Firmino start at the weekend Ollie against Manchester City because for me it's a pretty easy decision that we saw how good the three of them were on Tuesday night Mane Jota and Salah surely they have to be the three at the Etihad yeah and I think that. Uh, Joel wrote a piece, our wake-up piece this morning that I think is important to note is it doesn't have to be a knock on one of them because you start the other one. It's just great. It's just options. It's just different tactical plans you can use against different opposition depending on what you like. It's just a variety. And I think that you would be it would be silly to not roll with that three again, particularly against the City back line, by the way, where you have no idea how they're going to line up. Is it going to be three? You have no idea who's going to line up in what spot depending on what the team sheet even says. And so by rolling with Jota, Salah and Mane, you can, like we said, get creative on the fly if you want to. If they, if they put Kyle Walker at right centre-back, you can you can pick and choose which matchups you want. Same with Ake. So to me, it just makes sense. Form, obviously, is the obvious one as well, that you just want to have your most informed players when you might only get two or three good chances in this kind of match. You want to have your most informed uh, attacking players on the pitch. So I think that it's, it's a no-brainer to me. Um, but it should not be seen, I don't think, as a, as a massive slight to Firmino in any way. This is just great. This is what it was all about. It's that they found the fourth player as an option that isn't Shakiri, that isn't Origi, that is genuinely at that level where you just feel completely comfortable. If you said now Firmino has an injury similar to Van Dijk and he's out for, for 30 games a season, it, would, it wouldn't be great news because it would take away the options, but he's at a level where it wouldn't be a death knell to the season. So they, they just have options now, and that's the great thing. And to me, like you said, Matt, it's a, it's a no-brainer for Sunday. Yeah, I mean, last time Liverpool had to turn a game with substitutes against Manchester City, Joel, it was January 2019. Leroy Sané scores the winner, but Liverpool on that day brings Erdan Shaqiri and Daniel Sturridge off the bench. This time it would be potentially Roberto Firmino and informs Erdan Shaqiri as, as a different proposition as well. It it just goes to show really the, the strength in depth that Liverpool have and, and that unpredictability that Pep Guardiola will be looking all at this week at, at trying to guess what Liverpool are going to do. But it's a very difficult task for him to, to be able to accurately predict that. I think the unpredictability is a really important point because the amount of games Liverpool have played against this City team now between Klopp and Guardiola, um, they know what it's like to play against the front three with Firmino in it. And they haven't always done brilliantly. Sometimes it's worked better than others. Um, but they'll have a game plan. They know roughly what to expect from that. With Jota playing, it's just a massive curveball that they've never had to deal with. Um, only one team has had to deal with it, which was Atalanta and City were also playing on Tuesday night. So fair play if they're going to spend the next three or four days trying to work out what on earth to do with that front three. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that sort of unknown factor that he brings is massive. And I think as well, Klopp's not going to just be looking at what they'll bring on the pitch. He's, he's obviously a brilliant man manager as well. And psychologically, I think it's easier to sell um, off the back of a hat-trick that good that you keep Jota in the team. And I'm sure Firmino sort of understands that. And it's not like he's permanently out of side or he, he's passed it or anything like that. It's just, I think any player in the squad recognises that when someone plays that well on a Tuesday, they deserve to start again uh, at the weekend. And there's been plenty of examples as well where Firmino's come on in games and, and given Liverpool a real, real boost off the bench. Um and you can easily see a scenario where if the game's still tight and it's there's only kind of one goal in it or it's still level with half an hour to go and you bring Firmino on against tired legs, um, that's a really appealing option to have as well. And you're right to reference Shakiri. He is 
if any player defines unpredictability, it's him. You always feel like when he's on the pitch, anything can happen. So they're going into this game with loads of options, as Ollie says, but I I would like to see, and I, I think I just about expect to see Jota get the nod again. One thing yeah. you said there, Matt, is really important about how the the midweek preparation, particularly in a year where things are truncated, you don't have as much time to work on things, that how much time teams, Guardiola this weekend, managers moving forward, will have to put into the variety of things. Is it 4-2-3-1? Is it 4-3-3? Is it Jota? Is it Firmino? If you look at the Sheffield United game, Chris Wilder came up with a plan to attack Liverpool's uh, defensive structure that was unlike anything most teams have done. Very specific. It was something that you would not draw up ordinarily because it goes against all the conventions um, of modern coaching. Um, and It took Liverpool a long time to figure out how to deal with it, which is basically put three guys on the same vertical plane, which you would never recommend to do because it would takes out all the width. And it took Liverpool a long time to go, you know, maybe we should put someone else in the middle there because there's this massive gulf of third-man runners that seem to be charging through every three minutes. And clearly Sheffield United had pinpointed that, decided that was how they were going to run things and repped it and repped it. And it really worked for the first uh, 50 minutes of the game, basically, until Liverpool decided to change things up. You cannot put those kind of plans in place when you have no idea what the team's going to look like. Because you might decide, let's rep this for ages, let's go to three at the back. And then all of a sudden, he rolls out 4-2-3-1 with Firmino in the hole in it. it there's nothing you can do about it. So having that kind of variety isn't just great for him in terms of like who he can pick, but it, it makes it almost impossible for other coaches to plan exactly the execution the they want to have. They're going to have to prepare three or four different things in a time frame where they don't really have time to prepare three or four different things anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Just thinking about the Manchester City game then, Joel, is this the most important game of Liverpool's season so far? If City are beaten by Liverpool, they would go eight points ahead of them, albeit City would have a game in hand. It, it feels like a big one every single season, but again, with the, the sort of truncated nature of, of the fixture list, it could be even more so this season. Yeah, it feels huge, especially as a tone setter heading into the international break, because whichever result you get off the back of that going into two weeks... It just feels like it sets the mood. Um, and we felt the kind of the opposite end of what that was like last time going into it off the back of a 7-2 against Aston Villa. And it felt horrible um, because at that point, there's so much doubt. It's like, how how do you, how are Liverpool going to respond to this? The next game after that was obviously against Everton, who who were 100% at that point. So it felt kind of quite precarious. Whereas now Liverpool have got themselves back on track. They've dusted themselves down. They've got the wins together. This feels like a real opportunity. And the table so far has been kind of, a little bit deceptive because City have been sort of lurking and around mid-table mostly, but because they've had that game in hand, they're actually a lot closer to Liverpool than it looks. Um, it's just because there's so many teams packed together, sort of two or three points apart in that, that upper half of the table. So this one feels like a huge sort of potential swing. Um, if Liverpool win it off the back of the Atalanta game, it just it suddenly feels like they've really put the Van Dijk thing behind them. The Fabinho injury as well, they've dealt with brilliantly so far. It would feel like a huge, as much as it would help the table mentally, I think they'd feel like they'd really sort of climbed a hurdle there. Um, and they would have already chalked off a lot of the most difficult games this season. They've already been to Chelsea away. They've been to Everton away, which whatever you want to say about them is never an easy game for Liverpool. They've obviously played Arsenal. Um, and to get City out the way as well. Um, yeah, it, it does feel absolutely massive as it does every time they go there. It was around this time last season, Ollie, that Liverpool beat Manchester City 3-1. And it felt like the moment in last season when Liverpool really thought, you know, let's establish a lead. And, and they didn't really look back from that point onwards. 
I'm not saying necessarily that if Liverpool were to win here, that the same thing would happen, but it still feels absolutely massive going into it, doesn't it? It does. I think they also have, like, they've not really integrated Thiago yet. So you're going to come after the international break and have this run of games where hopefully you can integrate Thiago from City onwards. So there's, there's all kinds of players to come back from injury. Which So if they manage to get through this period where, for a club that was apparently in crisis, being top of the league and top of the Champions League group, it's, you know, it's not bad. Turn from the international break. Oh, here's the best midfielder in the world. We'll just drop him in the team. No problem. Let's go. Um, but I, I do think that the difference I think this year would be, I think, momentum in whatever way you want to define it, it'll just be hard to get this year. It's going to be such a strange season. The games are going to be so fast that you might have a disappointing draw one week and everyone worries about momentum, but two nights later you hammer someone and suddenly you've got momentum again. So as much as I think, obviously, you're, you're facing your direct title rivals, it's the biggest game of the season. So if you win, it's massively helpful, but there will be funky results all along the way. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again, just get to March. Get to March within three points, three points ahead, three points behind, it doesn't matter there will be a weird slip up along the way and they'll have a weird slip up along the way. So I don't think it's as directly important um, as it has been in previous years. I just don't think you'll have the 97 points needed or the 99 points needed. It may be 91, 92 high eighties just because of the strange nature of the season, particularly from Christmas to March, it's it's going to be really fast and intense. So um, yeah, I think it's always important, but I don't think it has quite the same, um, the same impact as it has done in previous years. And in terms of sort of team selection, Joel, I mean, for me, nine out of the 11 are pretty much nailed on. I think the, the two question marks really for me are at centre-back, where I wouldn't expect Reese Williams to be there if Joel Matip is, is back. And in midfield, as well as Curtis Jones did on Tuesday, I'd be surprised if it was him again. I think not least because he played the full game on Tuesday. That kind of hints that he's not going to be involved, at least from the start on Sunday. I mean, would you go along with that? And, and in those two positions, if you would... Who would you be picking instead? Yeah, as well as Williams has done and Nat Phillips in the last game, I don't particularly want to see either of them starting at the Etihad. Um, mostly because I don't think it's fair on them at this point. Um, and Matip was back in the training. I think it was a very deliberate strategy not to start him against Atalanta with a view for, for wrapping him up in cotton wool. Because as we know with Matip, that is necessary. Um, you can imagine him sort of playing against Atalanta and then bruising <laughs> a toe or whatever it is and he's out for another three or four weeks. So... Yeah, I think it's massive that he's back for this game. Remarkably, and don't take my word for this completely, but I think Gomez and Mastiff had never started a game at centre-back together. So this could be the first time. So quite a place to do it. But I think given they're the two fit senior options, I think you, you've got to go with them. Um, midfield, it's, it is for Thiago question. Um, you feel like every single press conference at the moment, Klopp's going to give us the green light with that one and say, he's back. Um, I do wonder if he, he's doing a little bit of a strategic thing where they just don't want to commit to it either way and keep keep City guessing because like Ollie says um, the, the ability to just drop in the world's best central midfielder in, in that role out of the blue is a bit of an ace up the sleeve. Um, I would love to see that combination of Henderson and Wijnaldum with Thiago. I think you saw what it looked like with Fabinho in the derby um, instead of Wijnaldum the, the level of control they had um, there's just so much balance there defensive in and offensively. I think going to the Etihad, that's that's one of the things Liverpool uh, haven't necessarily had so much in recent seasons where the game has been not played on City's terms, but they haven't had a consistent grip of the midfield quite as much as you would have wanted. Um, I think if you go with that three, um, the form Henderson, one out of them are in for midweek, plus Thiago, um, that would be such a nice basis to have. Um, if Thiago doesn't make it, I think you're right. Jones won't play it again because he started that game and 
I think tactically you do want someone a little bit more sort of defensively minded, um, which then probably leaves Cater as the next obvious option, I would imagine, ahead of Milner, um, given he came off the bench and is fit again. Um, but Thiago does feel like a little bit of a game changer in this one if, if they can get him fit and, and available to start. If he is fit, Oli, would you be throwing Thiago straight in there? I mean, it's obviously a, a huge thing to have a player of his quality fit, but is Manchester City the right game to throw him into, given it's just off the back of a, well, not a long injury, but certainly a few weeks away? Yeah, in a perverse sort of way, he's the guy most geared up for it. He's been in and out his entire career. He misses three games here. He misses four games there. He misses two months there. So no one is more used to a disrupted rhythm in their career than Thiago Alcantara. You know, this is what he's primed to do. And he swans onto the pitch. I mean, the Chelsea game is the best example ever. He doesn't know anyone's name. He walks on, suddenly he knows everyone's name. And he's rattling the ball around and changing the entire complexion of the Premier League. It's like all of a sudden he's breaking records. So... Um, I think he'd be fine. I think that, the, you know, it's not like he would step in and it would be too fast for him or he'd have to get up to speed. I think he would be fine. Like Joel said, I think this has been kind of the the short-term game plan of, of earmarking for this game. I would have more reservations about just dropping Matip in based on their defensive organisation in, the, in the last few games. As you said, Joel, that Matip and, and Gomez haven't played together before. I, I do get a bit more worried about just dropping him in and hoping he's up to the pace right away. Um, Did you go when Williams? You're I don't it, 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 the romantic in me says, yeah, trust trust the young lad and just kind of get through it and stuff. I, I know it doesn't make much sense, but I think I might do. I say this every time. This is why I shouldn't be a Premier League manager because we would be in our title race would be in trouble. Um, I think I would. I, I just don't trust him. I just don't. I, I, I guess ordinarily in a regular season, I'd say I would roll with Williams just because I don't like dropping Matthew in for one game when I know he's going to end up missing four or five games further on. But we are kind of in this season where it's just one game at a time, isn't it? And, just kind of and you've got a two-week break after this. As and well. you've got a two-week break from when he hurts his toe and then you'll be able to bring him <laughs> back in, I guess. So I guess I, I guess if you and my peplin is you taught me into starting him. But I would go into our meeting saying we're starting Reese. So I think you have a couple of points to make on Thiago there as well. Firstly, the injury he got against Everton was very much an impact injury. I think they described it as like serious bruising, which is not a kind of it's not like a an ankle ligament or a knee injury that you, or a muscular thing that you could risk aggravating. It's just an unfortunate sort of heavy knock that he got. So I wouldn't be too worried about sort of him coming back too early in that regard. He's been training by himself, so if, if he's fit, I think you don't have to worry too much on that front as well. With the kind of player he is, you can you can bet pretty sure that he's had this game. In his own mind, he'll have been watching the tapes of how he's going to play against Man City. He's a kind of player, even when he's not starting, Oli mentions the Chelsea game there, he would have been scanning that 45 minutes, exactly what he needs to do when he comes on the pitch. Um, so he'll know, I'm pretty sure. He's, he strikes you as the kind of guy who takes a real sort of tactical interest in the game. And I think you'll know, especially as a Guardiola team, he's worked under him before. He'll fancy this one, I think. Um, and Klopp did say in his last press conference that Thiago has been been desperate to make the next step himself so I think given you've got these two weeks now um, after this I think if, if you can you put him straight in I think Ollie, it's definitely going to be Henderson, Wijnaldum and one other and I know Genie Wijnaldum is someone that you wanted to, to touch upon as well because he has quietly been very very good now for the last couple of games I thought he was out of this world good against Atalanta and uh, I'm writing a piece this evening that I think will go up tonight or tomorrow on the site just how little drama there's been around a player whose contract is expiring. You look across the rest of Europe at um, 
Hel Hangalu at, at Milan. You look obviously at the Messi situation. You look at what's happened with David Alaba in Bayern the last couple of weeks, where it just becomes complete chaos, where the managers shouting at his board in a press conference, "Please sign this player for me," you know, "Please give him a new contract." Just none of that with Wijnaldum. Not even a hint of it. No drama. No no sense of Klopp being like, maybe he's going to start saving himself come January. Maybe I don't trust him quite as much. Complete faith in the player and completely rewarded with Wijnaldum playing as completely usual. It, it's the most typical Wijnaldum thing ever. Unassuming, professional, brilliant. Just going about his business. Contract, nothing, no drama. Just outstanding. And just before we finish, then we'll do some Manchester City game predictions. I think, Joel, it's really, really difficult to estimate what the score might be in this one, no matter who lines up, because we don't quite know what to expect from Manchester City. You don't always know whether it's going to be uh, the Liverpool that we saw on Tuesday or, or maybe a slightly different Liverpool team. I think I'm going to go with a, a two-all draw, but what do you reckon it might be? Hmm. Um, I can't see either team keeping a clean sheet. To be honest, that's that's the prediction I would say. Um, the optimist in me, which which is feeling stronger now after the last result and performance, um, I think Liverpool can win this one. I'm going to say two one. Um, I think as well, City is such a, a strange beast this season. Really, I've watched a fair bit of them, and all the narrative around them focuses on their defence not being good enough. But the, the the bigger issue has been their attack, which hasn't been creating or finishing chances anywhere near like its old level. Um, which it just it is very strange because you just always associate them as a team who's going to score goals. It's whether they can keep them out at the other end. Um, and you're right in terms, of, I couldn't even pick you a City lineup for this game. God knows what Guardiola's thinking. I know Gabriel Jesus, I think he came back in midweek in the Champions League. So you'd think he'd probably start. Ferran Torres has been playing quite well and scoring goals to them recently. You've, you've got Mares, you've got Sterling. Guardiola quite often likes to go with a sort of Rodri Gundogan um, axis in midfield with De Bruyne in front. Um, and then I think Cancelo has been playing left back recently, which is a little bit different to what he's done previously. So I don't know quite what to make of him, but I just feel Liverpool off the back of Tuesday night. If if, if Tuesday had gone slightly differently and had been another game similar to the, the West Ham and the Michelin and the Sheffield one, and they'd just have had to grind it out and they'd got a draw or a narrow win, I think I'd be a lot less confident. But I think having seen how well they played and with the possibility of Thiago coming back in. Um, I'm going to say Liverpool edge it 2-1. Yeah, it looks like Sergio Aguero will miss out, Oli. But Gabriel Jesus, as Joel said, came back on Tuesday, came off the bench and, and scored. You'd expect him to play. What do you reckon the, the Manchester City team might look like and, and the scoreline at the end? The City team's a tough one. I think what's interesting, Joel mentioned there their defensive record. The, that gets hard to learn. And I've written this a bunch. That it's more that, that their pressing has been pretty terrible now for 18 months, particularly when Rodri plays. That Rodri leaves too much space in the middle of the pitch. Everyone else has to press higher. And if you beat that first line of press, it's that they get swamped really easily. So it's not so much the back line as it is beating that first line of the press. And that's where you get a little bit concerned just in terms of the tactical matchup. Liverpool playing out from the back. Joel had a great piece this week looking at how stodgy it's been since Van Dijk has gone out, as Joel mentioned earlier. Gomez is kind of, he used to be the master of the, the Gomez clip, as I've called it, where it's that little dink out to one of the fullbacks. And he's tried to kind of expand that a bit now that Van Dijk has gone out. And you would need something like that, I think, to beat the first line of the press against against City. But I do worry a little bit about without having, whether it's Matip or Williams or whoever, that, that build up out the back hasn't been this strong um, this season, which, which is a little bit of a concern. I still think, um, 
on the whole. I would go 2-1, I think. I think Joel Freaks is right. Was, this is 2-1, by the way, before VAR gets involved in the 97th <laughs> minute or on you know, bloody Monday morning next week. Um, so I think 2-1, only because I can't pick a team for them. Because I, Guardiola, I have no idea what he's going to do. Five false nines with lads we've never heard of. Seven at the back. Uh, this this smells of an overthink Guardiola game. And I hate the overthink narrative more than anyone, but this one smells like a Guardiola overthink that he doesn't know who's playing for them. He doesn't know whether to play Cancelo as a, as a number eight or left back or whether to play Aki as a left back or a right-sided centre-back. So I'll go 2-1 just based on some kind of chaos uh, in the lineups. If I could have one wish for this game, it's that there's just no... For either side, frankly, no VAR nonsense because I've had enough of it. Three games in a row now. And it's almost like you said, Ollie, you feel like we're reaching a point where we're going to have games. We're playing, what is this, on a Sunday afternoon? I think it's a 4, 4.30 game where the game will happen. And then we're going to reach a point in seasons to come where you get into a Monday morning with a VAR <laughs> meeting at Stockley Park. And then they announce on Twitter the revised results of games afterwards, <laughs> having reviewed the game. It's getting ridiculous. So just as long as there's none of that, um, I'll be able to take whatever happens. Yeah, it would very much be a, a nice thing not to have to talk about VAR for two weeks whilst the players all go off on internationals. Oh. I think we can all agree on that. But uh, that is all we have time for on this week's edition of the Liverpool.com podcast. Plenty more to come across Blood Red over the next couple of days as we continue to build up to Manchester City. Neil Fitzmorris will be back with the Poetry in Motion podcast. Then there's our usual Blood Red Friday show, Jurgen Klopp's press conference with injury updates and plenty more besides. Until next week, though, here on the Liverpool.com podcast from myself, Matt Addison, plus Liverpool.com's Ollie Connolly and Joel Rabinovitz. That's all we have time for. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.